all and welcome back. And I hate to say it, but this is already our penultimate episode of the season. Sad times, I know. But today is definitely a good one for you. Professor Edlyn Verona talks to us about her work as a psychologist at the University of South Florida, but one who's not satisfied with just doing abstract research. She wants to use evidence to inform how decisions are made within mental health care, particularly in the criminal justice system. So listen in to hear more about her work on psychopathy and as one of the directors for the Center of Justice Research and Policy. So hello, hello everyone. Welcome back to Two Scientists, the podcast where inspiring scientists share their stories with you wherever you like to listen. I'm your host, Pam Vibahia. My partner in crime, David Basanta, is here, usually snapping away with his camera. And we have the pleasure of being joined today by Professor Edlin Verona. How are you? I'm really good. How are you? I'm, I'm doing okay. <laughs> it's, getting ever so, it's getting to that limit of being too hot to be outside in Florida, but I'm, I'm sucking it up for now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is hot. So um, you sent us a little intro to yourself, and uh, I wanted to introduce you to our audience. Um, I know that you are a trained clinical psychologist at the University of South Florida and that you study a really wide range of subjects from criminal behavior, psychopathy, substance abuse and violence. Um, but before you got to this point, you had quite the journey as someone whose family fled Cuba. Can you tell us about your history and um, what inspired you to study not just science, but the field that you ha- you're in now? Yeah, well, my... Um my dad was a political prisoner in Cuba, so, you know, and, he, and they were like a ragtag team. It's not like they had major, major battles with the Castro regime, but they, um, but they, I think, you know, had some weapons that they smuggled and they buried them. And then years later, one of the cousins kind of um, got snatched up and and gave them all up and so he spent my the first six years of my life in a cuban prison mm. um and then in 79 when uh you know jimmy carter thank him um <laughs> he he had a, a you know kind of an exchange with castro's or humanitarian exchange medicine to cuba for the release of some political prisoners and that's how i came over to this country um, and obviously we settled in Miami <laughs> as all good Cubans do. Um, and, um, and, and so, you know, we, I don't have any background, academic background in my family at all. You know, we, uh, we came, my family comes from very rural area mm-hmm. in Cuba. So it's west of, of Havana. So it's, it's called Pina de Rio mm-hmm. and there's a lot of farmers there and that's kind of the background my family came from um and so I'm not sure how it all kind of came together for me but I realized I think for me one of the things I realized is education was one way that I can I could do some things outside of the Miami culture Mm -hmm. like I could get away you know not that it was like that terrible but it it, it, I was I was like yearning for something different Mm mm-hmm and so I think that I, at some point, like the light bulb, you know, I'm okay at this. And if I continue this, that's the way to get out uh, and, and see the world because my mom was very protective. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't, she wouldn't have, well, she didn't agree to me leaving, <laughs> um, <laughs> but that was one way I could legitimately go. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, so tell us where it was you studied and the, the kind of subjects that you studied. Yeah, so when I graduated from high school, I did try to go away for college, but that wasn't happening because of my mom. So I, I got a scholarship to the University of Miami. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I went to school. And I had sort of foreclosed on psychology, partly because I was always interested in, in, in like what made people tick. And I had like a really good psychology teacher in high school. Mm-hmm. It's like not really very well thought out. Um, and so I, I pursued that path. I always kind of like was very orderly in it but I also then started double majoring in history which is a big big passion of mine that I do on this like that I like Uh on the side Um, but I ended up applying for grad school in psychology and that and it wasn't all that thought out but it ended up being like a really good choice for me luckily Um, and that's when I went to Florida State University for my PhD Mm -hmm. so now you are in, um, I actually forget which department you're in at Psychology. USF. Psychology. <laughs> that would be very logical, wouldn't it? Um, and I, so before I ask about your research specifically, I am going to guess that people have a lot of misconceptions about the subject of things like psychopathic behavior. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, what are the most common ones that you end up feeling that you have to address? Yeah, well, I think there's a couple. One mm-hmm. is that they have no emotions, which makes no sense, right? Like, if you had no emotions, well, you couldn't survive, period, yeah. right? It's like having no uh, no nerve endings yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. Um, so that's one of them. And um, and that they're, you know, the, there's a prototypical psychopath, which is probably very, very rare. Mm-hmm. Um so I think that's one that they're more new, you know, the presentation is much more nuanced than, you know, like a psychopathic killer. And that actually most serial killers are not psychopathic, which is an interesting piece. Um, the second piece is that they're not treatable. Like uh-huh. people are like, the only thing you can do is lock them up. Yeah. And actually there's there's growing evidence, uh, although, although still too little, that that you can change their behavior. Um, and and that you can curb some of the antisocial, mo- the more destructive aspects of their behavior, and they yeah. and they kind of burn out out of it, you know, uh-huh. as, as they get older anyway. So they might still be a little egocentric and that sort of thing, but at least the things that hurt other people more explicitly kind of yeah f- fade away a little. Obviously, I frame this as other people, but I have the same misconceptions <laughs> and kind of like it's it's hard to escape the stereotypes that you see on TV, mm-hmm. right? Yes, yes, and that's, and you know, often sometimes people in our field perpetuate mm. it. And, and, partly, and partly it's not their fault because I think when they do interviews or are involved in a lot of true crime shows, yeah, the questions sort of lead to more simplistic kind of explanations for things. And, and somebody being psychopathic is an easier way to explain some horrific acts yeah. than explaining like, you know, sort of the banality of evil mm-hmm. sort of thing, you yeah. know, uh, that that sometimes it, it looks just like us and yeah. has a history just like us. Yeah, it's and I think that's something that's really important to touch on, the idea that this is this is something that's other. It's easy to separate yourself from something if it's like, oh, well, th- this is not like me. Um, 
And so therefore, I can categorize this person as just being evil and be done with it. Right, and 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 it it that kind of viewpoint sort of misses the fact that most violent crime and murder happens amongst people that know each other mm-hmm. and yeah. that lo- sometimes love each other, yeah. or whatever that might mean. Yeah. So, so um, as I mentioned at the beginning, like you you study a whole host of things, like not just psychopathic behavior, but um, how is it that you? Well, how does your group find time to study so many quite quite different fields? Yeah, well, part of the part of what we focus on um, is a concept called externalizing. So the idea is that these behaviors that I study sort of tend to come in groups, right? Yeah. So the folks that are engaging in maybe substance use are also the folks that might be vulnerable to aggressive actions under stress or whatever so these things we think of it as uh you know if i think of myself when i'm thinking of myself in in sort of personality psychopathology researcher terms i'm thinking there's underlying vulnerability whether that's a combination of genetic and environmental factors that come together that put a person at risk of engaging in behaviors that are sort of disinhibitory mm-hmm. in nature, right? And the manifestation of that behavior can differ depending on the context, depending on on sort of other exposures and that they've had in their life. So for example, somebody with an externalizing vulnerability, maybe they're, they're highly reactive plus, um, you know, impulsive or sensation seeking. If they have a uh, if they're exposed to substance use early on, maybe mm-hmm. through um, through friends or whatever, that might be the route yeah. that they take, and that might be why they they then develop addiction problems, right? Uh, whereas somebody else that has exposed more to violence might manifest it that way. Yeah. So this is um, uh, a nomenclature thing before we move on. And David shared something that comes up a, lo- a lot, I think, when we're talking about this subject. What is the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath? So those are terms that were used prior, um, used decades ago to try to differentiate the etiology or the causal factors that are associated with these behaviors. So there was, you know, a line of thought that, uh, you know, there's those that are made. Mm-hmm. So through child abuse or socio-environmental adversity, mm-hmm. and then those who are born. Uh-huh. And that's the psychopath. Yeah. And actually, if you go to the original DSM or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, right. DSM-1, which was around the 50s or 60s, they actually had those two designations because the original DSM focused a lot of the characterization on etiology because mm-hmm. a lot of it was psychodynamic and psychodynamic sort of thinking was you know you categorize things based on sort of the conflict uh, you know the the causes the internal struggle co- conflicts that lead to the behavior and so that was one thing that they did um then that sort of uh, once we kind of realize, hey, it's a combination of genetic and environmental factors, mm-hmm. that sort of went away. And what you have more now is the term psychopath. Yeah. But because the psychopath was very hard to um, to assess in a quick and dirty way, because it, a lot of it involved like the ways that they are, their interpersonal characteristics. 
um, when they moved to categorizing disorders in a more reliable way, they took out a lot of the interpersonal personality stuff and kept just the behaviors, mm-hmm. right? So then you only have things that characterize it by like uh, criminal behavior, aggression, impulsive, that kind of thing. That started becoming called the antisocial personality disorder. Right. And that's what the term that's now in the current DSM Mm -hmm. to categorize people, basically people prone to criminal behavior and impulsive behaviors. Right. Um, So psychopathy itself is not in our DSM, Mm -hmm. but it is uh, considered separate from antisocial personality disorder and it's assessed differently. Okay. Yeah. So can you just define the word etiology for us before we go on? Yeah, it's ca- just causal factors, kind of like where, where it stems from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> one of the reasons this comes up is, I don't know if you've watched the TV show Sherlock. A little bit. Yeah, so I think in one of the first episodes, he people claim he's a psychopath and he says, I'm not a psychopath, I'm a highly functioning sociopath. <laughs> and I think that's it's one of those things that triggered for a lot of people, well, what's the difference? Okay, I guess now we know. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was it that drew you to this work? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, partly interest and partly serendipity. So the interest piece was, I was more interested in aggression and violence in particular. And actually not psychopathic type violence, which tends to be a little bit, uh, or characterized as more code and dispassionate. Mm -hmm. I was actually more interested in the hot, like angry aggression. Uh You know, hostility was something that I was more familiar with in my family background. Uh And that was sort of every day, like it wasn't physical, but it was, there was a lot of Mm -hmm. verbal hostility. And so that's what I was interested in. And actually my dissertation was on sort of more threat relevant aggression, like why we respond when we're sort of in a negative emotional state, what what drives that? Um, and then I started. So when I got to grad school, I started working with a woman, Joyce Carbonell, who was doing a research study on women in prison. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I started working on that level, like that female aggression, female um, female forms of criminality, what manifestations it takes, especially during the 90s. It was a time when uh, rates of female incarceration just started to shoot up, Uh Um, which is still the case that there's, you know, kind of men are sort of stable in terms of incarceration rates, but women are continue to increase. Um, And then I switched over, having that background, I switched over to another mentor, Chris. Chris Patrick, who's a big, who was a big psychopathy, still is a big psychopathy researcher. And that's where I started doing more biological, like sort of looking at the biological underpinnings of it, um, did a lot of psychophysiology to try to understand etiology, right? Mm-hmm. Because again, when I was younger, I thought etiology equals biology, right? Uh (laughs) It it was sort of that mindset that, okay, if it's biological, then, you know, that's where it came from. Yeah. Uh, So we started doing a lot more research on that, and that's when, and it brought together sort of this interest in aggression and violence and in emotion. Yeah. That was the big thing, because I was really interested in emotion and how that drives people to behave, sort of like, 
um, both mood dependent behavior like when you're feeling a certain way you know you just kind of act on that emotion instead of seeing instead of seeing the emotion as just like okay that's one thing that's about me it doesn't have to it doesn't have to define my behavior mm -hmm. right um, that was interesting to me but then I was able to look at emotion at its you know in both both polarities right so in the psychopath there's like this deficient emotionality like a like a, you know sort of their their behaviors are driven by uh you know kind of lack of mindfulness of their emotions and those of others right yeah. and then you had the other side which were those those folks who were more reactive mm -hmm. and they, they they were driven by their emotions and the outcomes were similar, right? So they both both ends of the spectrum kind of ended up engaging in criminal or violent behaviors, but through different means. Yeah. And that I, that's what I became really interested in, in trying to understand. Yeah. So you've, you've touched on this already, but um, you use a lot of different techniques and you, you've also mentioned the fact that, you know, biology is not necessarily the same as etiology. Can you explain the kind of techniques that you use to study all of these things? Because on the website, it mentions that you, you're interested in genetics, you're interested in neurophysiology, so how the brain works. But obviously, you're also studying clinical psychology, so you, you're studying people. Yes. Um, can, you sh can you kind of give us a, an overview of what a, a day in the life looks like for you? Yeah, and, and one of the things I should mention is my day the day in my life is sort of shifting mm -hmm. as I've gotten, you know, with that same mindset where um, at first I was really interested in the problem, right? And, yeah. and what, it, what is it that leads these folks to do what they do? And, and um, in understanding that, and I thought that was getting in their head, right? And whether that's by looking at um, it's not enough to just ask them because because a lot of times we don't have enough insight into yeah. our behavior. So tapping into some of these more automatic physiological outputs would give us a sense of what's happening with them when they're exposed to these stimuli in the environment. So we create an analogs analog situations in the lab so the whether they're exposed to threats uh through through pictures mm -hmm. you know or uh, one thing i've done is like just expose them to either shock or these air blasts that are really really um either fearful or irritating mm -hmm. and and just trying to simulate and that way i can capture their physiological experience so things i've looked at are something called fear potentiated startle mm -hmm. which they use a lot to study fear in animals yeah uh animal models right yeah. and it's really cool because in animals you know they look at the full body response you know humans mm -hmm. we don't we administer this sudden noise burst and through headphones and we blink that's a that's uh -huh. a component of the startle response in humans and that blink response we pick up on that muscle activity through electrodes and are able to sort of relatively look at uh, that potentiation so potentiation would uh, under certain environmental conditions like unpleasant or aversive experiences would tap into level reactivity and defensive reactivity in particular yeah and so psycho psychopathy would be associated with decreased defensive reactivity so they're not responding to these environmental cues 
of aversiveness the same way mm -hmm. and therefore that means that they don't consider the consequences as much because punishment might, uh, their the anticipation of punishment is not as aversive mm. to them as it might be to other people yeah where and so that's sort of the psychopathy piece of it but again i think there's a lot of folks who engage in aggressive and criminal behaviors partly because more of their disinhibition mm -hmm. it's not it's not that they're not afraid of consequences they just don't consider them at the moment yeah um it, when they're confronted with sort of their emotional experience or whatever the gain is at the moment yeah um so that's that's sort of the the work I was looking at is trying to understand in the moment what's happening for them that may explain these habitual behaviors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so out of curiosity, one of the things that obviously has happened as a result of the pandemic is that scientists have kind of switched their focus to try and get it to tie in with COVID-19. And I know that, you know, one of the more devastating things that's happened during um, you know, lockdowns and so on, is that there's been an increase in domestic violence. And I was wondering whether this is something that you've studied or you know of other people who have been looking into this. Yeah, um, I have not studied it. Um, one of the things that I know people were interested in is sort of the the juxtaposition of what was happening on the outside. So folks, so for example, early on in the pandemic, when there was the shutdowns, gun violence started to decrease quite mm -hmm. a bit. And people were like, yay, no mass shootings, right? And then there was this concern about what was happening indoors because yeah. now you're stuck with potentially an abusive partner. Um, and I know there's some work that's being done on this. But interestingly, we are now, we have been collecting some data, some archival data on that. So we've been coding um, gun violence incidents according to whether they're domestic or not. And so we're hoping to be able to get some of that information. The other thing that people don't talk enough about, about what was devastating about COVID is all the inmates and prisoners who yes. have been affected yes. by it. And that's an area of, not the COVID piece, but you know that's a, a sample that I've worked with quite a bit is correctional samples, inmate samples. Initially, it was again because these were these were the folks that were engaging in the behaviors I was most interested in. Yeah. But more recently, it's become kind of an interest um, as part of as I've moved more to trying to actually change, <laughs> change the world uh, or, you know, and so I'm, I'm less interested now in the problem, yeah. you know, like the problem, but more in terms of the solutions and that I don't need to understand the problem mm -hmm. to help in, a, in generating some solutions to some of the issues we have with the criminal justice system and yeah. and how people kind of get, get out of that cycle. So this is the absolute perfect segue into my next question, which is, you know, the in the past year or so, and, you know, we are essentially at the one year anniversary of George Floyd's mm -hmm. death, unfortunately, um, that, you know, social justice and highlighting police brutality and as you say the criminal justice system has come to the fore um, and you are now co-director for a new sentence along uh, sentence uh, you co-director <laughs> for a new center along with dr. Brianna Fox called the Center for Justice um, research and policy 
Can you tell us more about how and why it was founded? Yes, it's a great, you know, it's a great story because because it's um, sort of through my researcher sister wife, Dr. Brianna Foss, uh-huh. and you know we've really we've really become partners in this, um, and she you know she kind of gave me has given me the opportunity to shift my focus that's more and do research that's more consistent with the values I've gained through a lot of outside advocacy and activism that I started doing a few years back and where I had this itch like I'm not doing enough we haven't we haven't cured anybody Uh (laughs) we haven't I haven't stopped violence you know I haven't prevented anybody from being violent like my work isn't making that impact and honestly a lot of psychopathology research isn't isn't doing what we're supposed to be doing which Mm -hmm. is reducing the burden of mental illness and and the social impacts so she gave me this opportunity there's this criminologist and not she's not only a criminologist but she's working in the field yeah and she does really hard work where she's implementing evidence-based practices in settings where they're not always super interested in yeah. doing so. Um, and so through my collaboration with her, we realized, you know, we have a common goal, which is to affect the positive change um, in the criminal justice system. So why not bring together not only our expertise, but bring together so many different uh, scholars as well as practitioners in the criminal justice system who really want to make this change and, and get all tools available to us under one roof as it were right or under one space and that was sort of the goal of this center is that I'm done with just doing research for research state yeah. sake and that's okay right like that we need to do that I'm all for research for research sake but I'm done doing it Mm-hmm. Right. And um, and so we said, you know, the goal of the center is not just to get grants or to get research, but to get grants and conduct research that's going to create that simultaneously is 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 moving the needle mm-hmm. towards change to make it to make the justice system and uh, some of the other systems that support it more equitable, as well as like just just using science-based methods instead of yes. doing what we've always done and for reasons that are often irrational or if we're going to do things for irrational reasons then we should just be upfront about it yeah you know <laughs> it's like okay we want to be punitive because that's what we want to do right yeah um so i mean can you tell us more about the people who are involved because obviously you and brianna are both uh scientists researchers and this is um for you clearly this is now not just your research this is your vocation right um but there i i looked through who else was involved and there's a really kind of interesting group of people Mm -hmm. who are part of the center can you explain who they all are and essentially were they chosen did they they did they choose to get involved with the project such an interesting question you know what brianna and i did it's really interesting because we actually did our homework I know because I was like I was like impulsive and like let's do this let's do this and, and I'm like glad I'm very action oriented and she's like eh. you know which is funny because I'm the older one right <laughs> but you can see why some of what I do is me search right <laughs> so I tend to be like more aggressive and action oriented but um, 
we actually started talking to colleagues and people maybe we didn't know in USF and outside about what we wanted to do and just to get their perspective like what do you think of this or you know is this some is there a need for this you know and 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 through our conversations with them we we sort of got a sense of who's really wanting the same mission mm-hmm. and I mean they were the right people to ask advice from but then we were able to see like oh my god this person really believes in this too and and that's what we did we based it we after we had these conversations and some people just gave us advice right they weren't interested in being you know but they they were people but we we from that we kind of realized like these are people that would want to do this and they, they bring in some really interesting tools that we definitely don't have mm-hmm. and they really want to make change like they don't just want to get publications yeah because we don't you know we can do that on our own yeah and so that's how we we um, we chose those folks to invite them to be kind of our inaugural leadership team mm-hmm. and so that includes uh, an anthropology professor John Bethard who is an anthropology professor who is really interested in missing persons investigation uh-huh. and making those more equitable as you know that's you know what what uh, people are investigated often depends on you know what's what's get gets more media attention that sort yeah. of thing um so that's that's an example of one that sort of like i didn't realize anthropologists cared about the criminal justice mm-hmm. system or that kind of thing um so we have an emergency medical doctor jason wilson which i followed all the time because of covid since covid uh-huh. he yep. always had his post about like what's happening and i'm like oh my god this guy it's like my covid guru right <laughs> but he's he's actually doing work in the emergency department to curb um opioid overdoses mm-hmm. for example and um he's done some work on gun violence uh with gun violence victims to help get them uh you know kind of talk to them about sort of ways to prevent being wounded or, or killed in the future again yeah so um so those are some of the examples of people that we have people in public health uh, we have a couple of sociologists which totally makes sense mm-hmm. um and uh it and uh we have a, a psychologist she's in sarasota manatee she does work on jury decision making Mm. you know which is social psychology yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of realm not not area so these are the kind of people we brought together and then we also wanted to address different areas of the criminal justice system so the courts yeah uh policing obviously corrections mm-hmm. um and and um and one i forget yeah <laughs> Oh, the community part, right? Right. So there's a community prevention and intervention piece that's really important. So outside of the justice system, that's mm-hmm. where the key. Yeah. So do you have kind of a tangible goal in mind as to what mm-hmm. what kind of changes would be made? Or are you really just relying on the evidence to then be able to go to the, the police or the courts and say, you know, we have understood this to be the case we think that this would be a good way of informing how you make your decisions in the future yeah it would be disingenuous of me to say i don't have an agenda mm-hmm. right and and you know a lot of my um 
a lot of a lot of my uh, sort of qualitative research colleagues would say you know you have to be upfront about that yeah. in conducting yeah. your research which is not like probably how we were trained you know mm -hmm. where it's like oh, research is objective yes um, well that's also not completely true so you know. <laughs> exactly but let's not go there right yeah now. exactly so um so i do i think there's certain areas that definitely are ripe for it because the evidence is already there mm. so the idea is can we i think for us for brianna and i I think it's like if we make some changes locally, implementing some, implementing and evaluating some programs that we know have been sort of validated elsewhere. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the big things is implementation is not easy, yeah. right? You have to work within the context in which you work in. So something that worked in Seattle may not work here, not yeah. because the people are not willing here, but just because the contexts are different. Um, the you know the politics different whatever. Yes. Yeah. So so I think that's one of the things we want to be known in the at least in the Tampa Bay area mm -hmm. as the people you would want to work with if you're a practitioner in the state's attorney's office. Yeah. Or in um, in policing, who like they're like you know we should be doing things better. Yeah. And if, if you talk to them, a lot of people are like, yeah, we want to be more efficient mm -hmm. and we want to do what works. Yeah. And um, and so we want to start with that changes here mm -hmm. that that are, are tenable and be able to evaluate are those things or are those some of these changes, um, you know, kind of viable here and are they working in the same ways? Yeah. Do you have examples of things that might have been implemented already? So there are, um, I could tell you that in, in Hillsborough, we have a great state's attorney, mm -hmm. which is Andrew Warren. Right. And he, he really believes in evidence-based um, practice in his, he's been, he's been doing some of this. So for example, um, changing the ways in which we criminalize drug drug mm -hmm. charges um, yeah. and he's been working with the sheriff by the way to to make some of those changes bail reform is the big one mm -hmm. I think uh, I don't think that we've gone as far but that's a really important piece for us and we're actually looking at some data now which is totally beyond my scope of work right? uh -huh. yeah but I'm really interested because I know some other jurisdictions that are just getting rid of bail cash yeah. bail and and um and we we know that the pretrial detention can have major uh iatrogenic effects or bad effects on people when they they re-enter because at that point if if they spend a lot of time in pretrial detention they've already lost whatever job they had mm -hmm. yeah. right out yeah. in the community we've seen women and this is an extreme case but we've seen women at the pasco jail who were caught for not paying their traffic tickets right mm -hmm. and then they get their license suspended yeah so then they don't show up to court at that point a warrant is sent out for their arrest and then they're <laughs> then they're it's not funny but it like then they get they get pulled over they go to the jail yeah they can't pay their bail which might be five hundred dollars yeah or, or their bond sorry 
they spent two weeks there. Yeah. At that point, again, whatever job they had, or if they have kids, where are their kids at yeah. that moment? So there's there's so many reverberating effects of that piece for a very you know somebody who has will have no impact on public safety right yeah like this person being out will not make your life more you know more risky or, or or and so those are the kind of things that we were very interested in impacting by showing this so we've you know other jurisdictions have shown this and so we're trying to show it in you know closer to home yeah with some data okay so um Obviously, research funding has to come from somewhere. David says, as someone whose research is funded by the taxpayer, mainly in the shape of the National Cancer, Cancer Institutes or the state of Florida, how is your research funded? And is the center that you're working at now going to have a specific um, source of funding? Yeah. So traditionally, as a psychopathology researcher, my research has been funded by NIMH or the National Institute of Mental Health, uh-huh. right? Although there, there isn't as much interest in in some of the stuff I, I you know, like their interest is severe mental illness. Mm-hmm. And so, so a lot of times I would get from my, from program officers like, well, that's a, that's like a criminal justice thing, uh-huh. right? So as I've shift, we now have funding from National Institute of Justice. Right. Okay. And one of the reasons that wasn't a source I tapped into, despite what I've always studied, is that they're very applied. They're interested right. in the sort of things where, okay, you're working within these settings and you're implementing interventions or policy change, and then you're evaluating them. And that's mm-hmm. what we were able to do in this last grant is that we were able to say, hey, we've collected some pilot data at this jail. Jails really need re-entry services. Let's do it. Yeah. And so my background in mental health helped with that, right, mm-hmm. um, in, in pursuing that kind of work. And so I think that's that's the line of work we will probably, or the, the funding source that we'll probably be tapping into mm-hmm. more. Um, but there are others, so we're looking into... You know, one of the things about the center that's going to be hard now, I think the fun is over, is sustainability, right? Yes. And you guys know, like, how do you sustain a program, not only a program of research, but this, and and our ideas are through a lot of community engagement, so conducting trainings for law enforcement, mental health professionals, that sort of thing, bring in some money to help fund that. So we're going to look, look at sponsors. We've got some sponsors, like the... Tampa Bay sports mm-hmm. teams have, yeah, have funded amazing. part of the work because they're they have a philanthropic arm. Yeah, very interested in social justice. Yeah, um, especially after the George Floyd yeah. murder, and so he so that's that's another piece. So we're we're sort of tapping. We want this to be this hub where a lot of stuff happens. Yeah, both exchange of information with the public, working collaboratively, as well as training you know the public as well as professionals who work in these settings Mm -hmm. Um, and they might be mental health caseworkers law enforcement um, attorneys whatever yeah uh, about some of this evidence-based work that's being done yeah and I think it's kind of important to given that we started talking about funding to explain that you know grants any source of funding quite often comes with strings attached Mm -hmm. right 
and according to who you go to for the money they say well you can only do basic research with this money or you can only do applied things with mm -hmm. this money and by applied we mean they essentially want real world exactly. kind of examples of how these things work so I mean it's great that you've managed to find a stream that's now appropriate and it's it's super interesting to see and I, I was wondering actually what the um, so for people who are listening to this podcast like the the event will already have passed but uh on the 26th of may there is the official opening event and the the tampa bay rays and the bucks are they also going to be part of the event yeah representatives from them it's not yes. like Tom yes, Brady's yes, yes. no 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 <laughs> <laughs> that would be kind of yeah. cool but no yeah so representatives who who run some of the philanthropic aspects of it yeah yeah and this is, I guess this is another thing that didn't occur to me before, is the amount of philanthropic work that sports teams do. Yes, yes. And um, I don't know, the Miami Heat also does a lot of this. Uh, so, you know, and I think, I don't know for sure, but I think a lot of it is driven by the players and some of their interests. And um, I don't think that they do it otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I don't know, but I suspect not. Not this area. Yes. Right? Yeah, agreed. Right. Like, it's easy to, like, fund a kids' cancer charity, for exactly. example. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. This is more controversial. I mean, I remember I have uh, my brother-in-law works for the for the whatever the stadium is that the Heat play in. I forgot what it's called. Like, something <laughs> arena. Yes. But anyway, he works for the, the what? American Airlines? Maybe I don't know. They <laughs> change. They also change their names yeah, so often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever corporation arena, and <laughs> and they um, and they put a Black Lives Matter sign in front, of, and it, it caused controversy, right? Yeah. So so th that is a con it's a very controversial. It shouldn't be right. Yeah. Because it is a bipartisan kind of you know criminal justice reform is very bipartisan. Yes. yes. And we work with law enforcement, you know who. Who are like we don't want more people coming in through the system they don't see it that way right and so i think that's also a misconception that that they they kind of get something out of like bringing people in yeah I mean, they do come from from a different perspective right mm -hmm. and they might see people who engage in crime with less of a mental health lens than we do but they they want their you know they don't want to be overcrowded yeah. in their jails they don't want you know to have to chase after not literally but you know chase yeah. after people who are not showing up to trial or whatever yeah. so um so in many ways you know i think it's it's a very kind of like issue that people people all want some solutions for yeah do you see yourself being a part of a movement of these kinds of centers to do this work elsewhere do you know if there are other centers doing this kind of work yeah there definitely are other centers who who are that are doing really great work they tend to be um housed within criminology or criminal justice um departments uh -huh. or with only would tend to not be sort of scientific well or, no they are scientific right they just aren't um interdisciplinary i see okay so um so you know i think that's one of the pieces that we wanted to be you know kind of explore that there's multiple settings in which these activities can happen like mm -hmm. i said the emergency department you know yeah. it doesn't have to be in a jail yeah in a, um it can be you know sort of when um 
it could be done by anthropologists. It can be done by people who have tools that we haven't tried before. Yeah. Right. And so I think that's that's what we wanted to to try out something yeah. that involved kind of a a larger a large you know sort of innovating new solutions mm-hmm. right yeah from this uh from the the tools that are available yeah so um one of the last questions i think we're going to have uh david asks are you an optimist or a pessimist or a realist <laughs> well i think i think it depends on what you're talking about right <laughs> If it's about like, uh, if it's about like whether I'm gonna lose weight, no. It's been, <laughs> it's like when you reach my age, my metabolism. Okay, anyway. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> but in terms of the, I, I, I think in terms locally, I think I'm, I'm very optimistic. Yep. I think that we can create the, the right types of partnerships that we can affect change. Um, so that I'm, I'm very hopeful for. I think. It, you know, I, and I think in, in this country, we can only get better. I mean, mm-hmm. things, I'm, unfortunately, I really think that things are broken. Yeah. Um, and if we don't get better, it's, it's going to be tragic. So. Yes, quite. Um, he also asks, what kind of tree are you? Do you want to explain why he asked that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I said that you guys are sort of the the um, the the Barbara Walters of scientific podcasts <laughs> because you tend to talk about people's personal motivation. <laughs> so that's why, yeah. And and I think I would be a gardenia bush. Oh, very nice. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, I don't smell as good, but yeah. <laughs> but I'm short, and I, you know. <laughs> Well, on that note, um, unless you have anything else you'd like to share about the center specifically before we sign off? No, but I invite uh, I invite folks to kind of check us out. Yep. And if you have interest in doing work, like you, maybe you're in the community. Yep. Or you have kind of some like cool idea you want to pursue. Even if Brianna and I can't do, we bring it to our leadership team, or or we're starting to develop some affiliates, and they might want to latch on to it. So, um, so you know, kind of just reach out. Yeah, for sure. We'll make sure we put a link in the notes for the show. That would be great. Thank you so much yeah. for talking with me. Of course. No, we really appreciate your time. It's, yeah. it's so generous of you to come and speak to us. No, and it's great work that you guys are doing. Thank you. Thank you. That's very kind. Thank you all. our son uh-huh. and when he was in kindergarten he's nine now but when he was in kindergarten you know I was a gun, one of those gun-ho older parents right I'm like I'm gonna be involved in everything and so the teacher's like hey you want to do a teaching and I'm like yeah and I was gonna teach him about psychology and emotions mm-hmm. right and so I go there and I've got like this analogy of a house and so the the top the top floor is like the prefrontal cortex that kind of controls behavior and and the bottom is like the subcortical areas that deal with emotion right so I'm doing this and then I ask for volunteers Uh uh-huh right and I pick only a couple of them and then the rest are crying (laughs) and I'm like 
Obviously, I skipped out on developmental psychology to know that you can't just pick a few of them. They all want to be involved. So it was like all their hands shot up. Right? And then the teacher had to be like comforting each of them in turn. And one of the people crying, one of the students crying was my son. <laughs> so. That sounds like an epic parenting fail. Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to me, Pambe Bahia, and enjoying the background work done by David Basantha. Our locally featured artist playing in the background is Rugod, and the track you're listening to, Ojos, was made generously available through Creative Commons. We believe what Edlin and her colleagues are doing at the Centre for Justice Research and Policy is super important, and we know that they're keen to form collaborations with local community groups to help inform their work. So please get in touch with them if you would like to learn more. The relevant links can be found in our episode show notes. I hate soup so much. <laughs> it's horrible. And my husband's from the Midwest and his family's from like Ireland, you know, whenever generations ago. And so they love to make stews and stuff. And I'm like, mm. it's, it's, 